Coming up this hour, it's our last show of 2020. We're going to look back on this crazy year and look ahead to 2021. You are listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on this. Are you okay with it, calling it Christmas Eve Eve? I saw one of our producers, Keith Conrad, railed about that on Twitter, Ian. How do you feel about Christmas Eve Eve? Oh, I like to call it uh, Christmas Adam is what I do. (laughs) Oh, that was terrible. You're starting off poorly. That's pretty bad. (laughs) Pretty bad. Yeah, it's all downhill from here. Not only is today Christmas Eve Eve, but for you Seinfeld fans, today is Festivus. Uh, so maybe we'll have an airing of the grievances later. Were you? I forget. Were you a Seinfeld guy? We've talked about The Office. Were you a Seinfeld guy? I think you asked me this twice a week, Brian. Are you? Uh, so you are a Seinfeld guy. Uh, <laughs> it is amazing that Festivus is like a thing that people like uh, commemorate now <laughs> oh, <laughs> to the yeah. point that. Jerry Seinfeld tweeted today. He said, maybe this year we skip the airing of the grievances. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be a good feeling, though, as a writer. You're like, you know, you really made it when a fake holiday from your TV sitcom gets like actual traction in the real world. That's got to be a real marker of success. Absolutely. So the Festivist poll and all sorts of other things. So, uh, yes, that is today, December 31st, uh, 31st, December 23rd. So uh, as I did mention in the open there, this is Ian and I's last show before we take some time off until 2021. And so uh, we're going to treat the show pretty normal, looking at some articles and some other stuff, getting us ready for Christmas. But I did want to take some time at the beginning and at the end of the show, Ian, to kind of put a bow on 2020, which has just been uh, the craziest year I think any of us have ever uh, ever experienced. And then uh, at the end of the show, I want to kind of look ahead to 2021 and just kind of try to provide a little bit of inspiration, kind of look ahead. But as you think about 2020 and (laughs) you and I, we to sum up how crazy this year has been, you and I have done a show almost every day together, Mm -hmm. uh, every weekday. And we haven't really seen each other since March the 8th. (laughs) So uh, just a crazy year. Just when you look back on 2020, how are you going to encapsulate it? What are some things that'll come to mind for you about 2020? I'd like to use a word that I have not yet heard anyone else use, and that's unprecedented. I guess it? Oh, that was going to be my guess. (laughs) Oh, Brian. We really need to talk about the jokes beforehand. You don't Mm -hmm. undercut the punchline like that. My goodness. Sorry, Um, sorry, sorry. It's okay. No, I I think uh, it's interesting because it depends on the day when I'm talking about with people or I guess if it's people that you work with versus people that, you know, you haven't seen in a much longer time or I don't know, I I use the word bizarre a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've certainly used the word um, rattling. I've heard that word a lot. Like it really kind of shook up a lot of what was normative for us. It's been a year of, of grief. For, for sure, for a number of reasons. We thought even at the very beginning of all this, I think it was from The Atlantic. Somebody wrote an article that said something like, hey, that, that feeling you're feeling right now is grief. And how, at least in March, that was kind of really formative, at least for me, to like, okay, this collective experience is not just, ah, oh, man, what a what a crazy curveball of a year. or what a, It's like, no, there's, a, there's something deeper than just simply mm-hmm. or our life has been thrown into a tizzy, not to mention... Right the loss of loved ones and all sorts of health scares and all sorts of like interpersonal tension and mental health. And we know that we've read stories about people in really dire situations. I think it's way deeper than just, wow, what a crazy year it's been. Well, right. look to 2021. I think we need 
you need to give greater space for like the depths of how difficult, uh, how filled with sorrow it's been for a lot of people. And like you and I have, mm-hmm. have certainly mentioned, I hope a number of times how gratefully you and I feel that we can still do really both mm-hmm. of our jobs from the safety yeah. of our homes, knowing full well that there's millions of people that can't and couldn't and lost their job. You know, so it's for that reason, it feels like I don't think I could summarize it in one word because no. there there are very real aspects of it where I think I am legitimately grateful that I've been able to spend more face time with my family. There is a real mm-hmm. gratitude there. And yet you and I are both pastors and we now know a number of families personally, we've heard stories firsthand of a lot of sorrow and a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. So I don't know if it feels a lot like being being caught in the middle of these two extremes mm-hmm. with with all sorts of question marks surrounding everything in between. You know what I mean? Like that's that's sort yeah. of where my head's at today, at least. Yeah. And, and 2020 will always be marked by COVID, right? 50 years yeah. from now, when they say, what was 2020 about? It's going to be about COVID. Totally. Uh, but then, but then for, for our purposes, when you add on top of that, uh, uh, you know, the, the killing of George Floyd and everything that, uh, that yes. came out of that and the aftermath of it from just this summer. Uh, and then you add on top of that, uh, a presidential election that is still not even over for some people. Right. And, uh, and the the craziness of 2020, I think it, it can't be overstated. It can't be overstated. Like you said, for some, uh, the year, the the the, uh, the word's not unprecedented. The word is tragic because health, uh, loss of life, uh, whatever else. But uh, for others of us who maybe we weren't touched that closely by COVID, it has still been uh, rattling, as you said, and unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you tend to be the more reflective one of the two of us. Yeah, I gave that to you. Uh, <laughs> As you, I know it's hard to do. We're not even out of 2020 yet. But as you reflect on maybe uh, how you, maybe you've changed in a year because of all that we've been through, or things that you've come to realize or appreciate mm-hmm. or miss, what what are some things that come to mind for you, Ian Simkin? Yeah, that's a great question, man. There's, I'll answer first with the ones that maybe seem more obvious, more cliche, like being grateful for what you have, like not taking for granted relationships and small blessings. You know, I think that's certainly the first thing that kind of pops in my mind, maybe a little more beneath the surface for me would be making sure that I'm providing space both for myself and for others for grief, for lament to, Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that kind of giving of space to even looking at my own rhythms or sometimes lack thereof, you know, um, we've talked a lot on this show from the very beginning about confirmation bias and echo chambers, like you mentioned, not just with COVID, but with George Floyd and the election, like how do we actually hold space for one another to hear things we disagree with and not have to come right back with a rebuttal or a defense or a mm-hmm. like, it just feels like this has also been a year where we've been given an opportunity to really see other people in a, in a new light as we collectively experience the same thing, even though we are experiencing it very differently. And yeah, this part might also sound cliche because we're two pastors, but like <laughs> recognizing the Holy Spirit, the hand of God in yeah. even the smallest ways and leaning more fully in, you know, what does it mean to depend in Jesus, not just in the mountaintops, but in the valley, you know, and having to having to really live that out, not just in theory or in a sermon or in a Bible study, but like day to day when like there's when almost nothing looks like what it looked like a year ago. There's there's a right. lot of opportunity, I think, to. Yeah, to actually walk that out. And I think as pastors and and Christ followers, and even if you're not interested in any of that, like I think that there's a lot of humanness, a lot of opportunity to see each other, you know, more fully, which I 
yeah. want to continue to do in 2021, you know? Absolutely. absolutely. I think 2020 for me, uh, when I look back, like you said, there have been some blessings and some things that, that I think you and I both, like you said, being able to do our jobs from home, like I don't want to take that for granted. And and all that's meant right. for my family being able to be here, but, but just the lack of control. Like I, I've, I don't think that I yeah. ever considered myself to be a controlling person until this year happened. <laughs> and there mm-hmm. was so much out of my control, especially at church, you know, what, you know, everything's through this lens of COVID and lockdowns, but also my kids school and this and that. Uh, I, I, again, I don't think I ever thought of myself as like being a micromanager and a controlling, like, oh, I, I don't like when things are out of control, but this year has felt so out of control. Uh, mm. So many things that, that we weren't able to uh, just go, well, you know what, if I just work harder, if I just do this. And so that's one thing to reflect upon for me. And another one is just, you know, I do think this year just highlighted a lot of the disunity, not just within our culture, but within the church and uh, doing this show, I think has really shown that to me article after article and stuff. And I think, kind of saying, hey, how can we be part of the solution? What's that look like in 2021 and 2022, mm-hmm. I think, uh, is is going to be something. But yeah, Ian picked the word that we're all sick of. That's unprecedented, <laughs> but it certainly fits 2020. And so this being our last show of the year, I just wanted to start there and go, uh, what, what are we taking out of this year? We'd love to hear from you, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Common Good Talk. Uh, we'd love to hear your your reflections as well. Well, uh, an interesting article uh, that you sent my way uh, that just says this, kids who play sports are less likely to suffer from depression. We're going to talk about that study next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, as parents, I found this article to be interesting. You, you sent this our way. You, you put this on our document here. It's from a place called homeward.com, H-O-M-E-W-O-R-D, homeward.com. And it said, kids who play sports less likely to suffer from depression. This is really short, so let me just read this for us. It's from a okay. bigger article, but... It says there's plenty of heart healthy reasons to get children involved in recreational sports, but now the emotional benefits may be just as important. That's because a new study finds active children are less likely to experience depression. That conclusion had already been reached in previous studies for adults, but researchers at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology say they're the first to study the effect in children. Researchers studied 800 children between the ages of 6 and 10 over a four-year period. To get a good take on the emotional health of the children, the researchers did interviews with their parents throughout the years. The te- to test out their physical activity tells you what they use. They wore accelerometers. Accelerometers. Uh, the researchers ultimately found that the kids who had the highest level of physical activity had fewer signs of depression when they were reassessed after two years. So that's the that's what they found in the study. Let me ask you two questions, Ian. One, does this surprise you? We often ask that question. Does this study surprise you or does it kind of fit what you thought you would read? And then why? What do you think the link could be here between kids who are in sports, who are active in a decrease in depression? Well, I mean, I've read a number of things as an adult, I guess, that have linked or at least uh, seem to link physical activity and a less likelihood of depression. Um, I have a brother who's a doctor, so I'm nervous to speak out of my element here because I'm sure there's a lot of like physiology, neurology that's going on that could be much more clearly explained. But I, I find it interesting though, because like I was not good at sports as a kid at all. And uh, I really, like I really wanted to be, and I was fast ish, but I definitely, Mm -hmm. 
it created a lot of anxiety in me. Like, oh gosh, anytime, even like pickup games, I was like, boy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a fool of myself. At the very least, I feel like playing team sports creates a a level of camaraderie, like a real sense, yeah. a real shared sense of like intimacy with other people to some degree. And again, I'm speaking way out of turn because I'm not someone who played a lot of team sports, but that's that's kind of my guess. That's not just the the physical aspect of like, hey, something happens when you don't just you know, sit in a chair 26 hours uh, at one time, like, it's, you know, being active and that, you know, the oxygen in your blood and brain activity and heart and all that. I do think there's probably a, a deep sense of um, like social belonging. And when you're, when you're playing, especially in a team situation, when the attention isn't just on like me, myself and I succeeding and more about how can I sort of look to the success of the team? I think that there's a connection there too. I think that that's something that even, carries into adulthood that sometimes, you know, if you're feeling in a funk, some of the best things you can do is to serve somebody else like that. That is a practice that I don't think goes away when you're not a kid anymore. And uh, I my guess is that 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 might also be at play here. Yeah, I actually wondered the same thing. If this is less about physical activity, uh, because I wonder if I would love to see research for the kid who just runs on his own for a long time, (laughs) like, you know, gets the physical workout. I wonder if this is less about physical activity, although some of it is, and more about, like you said, community and camaraderie and team yeah. and being a part of something and, uh, be like I said, being a part of a team versus, you know, a kid who may not have that opportunity. You always hear about the kids, right, who are just playing uh, video games or doing this or that on their own uh, and, and wondered if it's a loss of camaraderie. I, too, have read the studies, you know, about adults and physical activity, but Uh, If this did, let's just say we're right. If this is more about team and camaraderie uh, and community, to use a word we use often, that uh, greater community, greater sense of belonging may, in fact, in kids and adults, decrease depression uh, or likelihood of depression. Uh, What's the takeaway for parents then? Like, what do we do with that? Uh, Your kids are getting older. My kids are older than yours. Uh, What is the takeaway for parents there? I mean, I think they're probably... A number of possible takeaways. I don't want to presume to know what to tell parents to do, but I think it is certainly, I remember even as a student, as a kid, some of the concern that other parents had towards my family was, oh, if you homeschool and then where are they going to find their belonging? Where are they going to find their community? Little do they know, like we had our youth group and I played in a band and we had a co-op, two co-ops and I was playing park league soccer. And I was like, man, I, I have plenty of social opportunities. I think. I think part of what is intriguing to me now, even watching my boys get a little older, is this last year, like Redmond's about to be two. So almost half of his life has been in quarantine. And oh, wow. He wow. and his brothers are like, he and his brother are like best friends. Like they've certainly grown. But I, I do wonder, like, what this will look like a year or two or three from now. Like, oh, are they, is that going to be a bit of a learning curve for him to like, remember again how to be around people even because the last time he was really like around people consistently he was a he was one so <laughs> that's wild he to didn't think really <laughs> even know what was going on yeah so yeah. there's a there's a part of me that thinks yes i think we need to help uh students and young people learn to be alone i think that's a that's probably a whole other segment i think that's really important mm-hmm. um, but again in a highly digitized social media age I think that there is a lot of benefits to online community. I think that those things can be really healthy and good, but I don't know that it ever really replaces, which is what a lot of us have felt this last year, like the 
the gathered communal association, whether it's a team sport or band or theater or chess club or whatever it is, there's something really valuable to that. And like to be able to help our kids seek out, Hey, it doesn't have to be soccer. You know, that's sometimes I think is like the, the biggest hurdle for parents. Like if dad was really into soccer, you better be into soccer. And like, well, I really like fencing, you know, like being open to, all right, well, as long as you're engaged somehow, we're going to support you in that. And I, uh, I think looking for those opportunities is going to be as important going forward as ever. Yeah. And one of the huge losses that I know as a parent that I worry about and I'm sad for my kids is not only have they lost the school camaraderie through, you know, hybrid learning, remote learning, whatever it's been throughout the year, uh, but much of the athletics has been canceled. Like my son's yeah, baseball right. team keeps playing, but, uh, you know, uh, he would normally be both my kid, both uh, my younger two would normally be playing basketball right now in the park district. And that's not going on right now. And uh, my daughter wanted to play volleyball and we just found out that's not going on. And like you said, band and theater and all these things are just not happening right now. Hmm. Uh, and so I do work, you know, if the inverse is that lack of team camaraderie and lack of this raises the, uh, the possibilities of depression. I think that's something we as parents and just as a culture have to have at the front of our mind as we think about our kids, uh, what the ramifications of all of this is going to be going forward, because all of that stuff's been taken away for yeah. good reason. We understand why, uh, but it's, it's been taken away and that'll be difficult. So, or it has been difficult. So you can see this article at our Facebook page or, or at Twitter and Instagram at common good talk kids who play sports less likely to suffer from depression. Well, coming up next gospel coalition, we're going to talk a little bit more about Christmas. Why does it matter? that Jesus was born of a virgin. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. As we said earlier in the show, today is our last show of 2020. And then uh, Ian and I are going to enjoy the Christmas and New Year hol- New Year's holidays with our families. We'll be back, uh, what is the Monday after New Year's? Is that January the 4th? That will be our next new show. And so we hope uh, that you have a great Christmas and a great new year. We are thankful for all of you who do uh, listen. And uh, we're looking forward to 2021. So at the Gospel Coalition, as we get ready for Christmas, uh, as the Christmas season approaches, Kevin DeYoung, who writes often at the Gospel Coalition, uh, he wrote this article. Why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? This is something we hear all the time at Christmas, right? Jesus was born of a virgin and that uh, that this is an important part of the story. So DeYoung is trying to answer the question, uh, not only, I suppose, why does it matter, but does it matter? And if it does matter, then why does it matter? So why don't you jump us into uh, Kevin DeYoung's blog here? I would love to, Brian. Let's go. It begins by saying the account of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 are clear and unequivocal. Jesus' birth was not ordinary. He was not an ordinary child, and his conception did not come about in the ordinary way. His mother Mary was a virgin, having had no intercourse prior to conception and birth. By the Holy Spirit, Mary's womb became the cradle of the Son's incarnation. Of course, the doctrine of the virgin birth, or more precisely the the virginal conception, has been ridiculed by many outside the church and in modern times by not a few voices inside the church. Two arguments are usually mentioned. First, the prophecy about a virgin birth in Isaiah 7, is, uh, it is argued, actually speaks of a young woman and not a virgin. To be fair, some scholars make this argument about Isaiah's prophecy and still believe in the virgin birth. Many have pointed out that the Hebrew word in Isaiah is Alma and not the technical term for virgin, Bethula, 
Uh, it is true that Alma has a wider semantic range than Bethula, but there are no clear references in the Old Testament where Alma does not mean virgin. The word Alma occurs nine times in the Old Testament, and whenever the context makes its meaning clear, the word refers to virgin. Second, many have objected to the virgin birth because they see it as a typical bit of pagan mythologizing. Mithraism has a had a virgin birth. Christianity had a virgin birth. They are all just fables. Even Star Wars has a virgin birth. This popular argument sounds plausible at first glance, but there are a number of problems with it. He goes on to unpack those in three moves. Um, but then, I, yeah, do you want me to read all of them? There's a lot here about Mithra and Buddha. Let me get to the heading that I think people are probably yeah, waiting yeah. for. The, the heading is, what's the big deal? So he writes, even if professing Christians accept the virgin birth, Many would have a hard time articulating why the doctrine really matters. Several years ago, Rob Bell infamously argued that it wouldn't be a big deal if we discovered Jesus had an earthly father named Larry. Maybe Larry the Cucumber. What if the virgin <laughs> birth was thrown in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionysian, I can't even say that, Dionysian religion cults, yes. religious cults? What if the word for virgin referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse? Bell suggests that none of this would be catastrophic to the Christian faith because Jesus would still be the best possible way to live. So what is the big deal about the virgin birth? Why does it matter? I'm going to pause before I dive into DeYoung's reasons. How would you answer that question if somebody from your church came to you and said, yeah, I'm with Bell on this one. Even if we find out that Larry was involved somehow, uh, what, what does it really matter? Uh, yeah, I think there's a couple reasons that it matters. Uh, one is uh, it's it's uh, scriptural integrity. I would give it that. But more so than that, uh, it, it it goes to uh, where did Jesus come from and did Jesus have sin, right? Was he sinless and how was he sinless, right? And uh, and also the divine nature, the divine nature and his human nature, this kind of uh, the he being fully divine and fully human at the same time, I think uh, there's a real problem with that without the virgin birth. So those are the first ones off the top of my head. Where, which ones, if you haven't read ahead, which ones, uh, why is it a big deal for you? I was going to say, I don't feel like those are off the top of your head. Those are the three reasons that he gives right here, Brian. That feels like... Are they, I honestly haven't read ahead. <laughs> yes, me and Young. I'm reading each one. I was like, he's just reading these responses, isn't he? I, you're going to need to take my word. I promise that I didn't. You're That's like, oh, awesome. Just off, just off the top of the dome. Um, here's all that. Here's all that we just learned. I've read a lot of Gospel Coalition this year. <laughs> It's just like so ingrained in your psyche that you now exactly. respond. That's really funny. Young. <laughs> oh, I didn't even look. I didn't even scroll down yet. That's funny. Okay. Well, are there yeah. any others that you would give? Well, let me just kind of expound on yours. I think probably the one that stands out most profoundly to me is the fully God, fully human aspect. I think that there are, there is plenty of room for disagreement on certain tenets of scripture, as we've seen, right? Like mm -hmm. we have, what, 30,000 global denominations. That means there are things in scripture that one camp thinks the Bible clearly says that another camp mm -hmm. also thinks the Bible clearly says and disagrees. So, you know, that that part isn't inconceivable to me. Now, we aren't just talking about, you know, <laughs> whether he was actually in this region versus that region. We're talking about the virgin birth. So that I would certainly elevate much further near the top. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think you're right. I think what you said about scriptural integrity, I'd be curious to know how you would define scriptural. Mm. integrity. I, I know that's not really the point of the segment, but like, 
let's say someone listens to this segment and they go, wait a minute, there's 30,000 denominations. How can we even have confidence in what scripture says about some of these things if that many smart people disagree on some of the inner workings? Yeah, in the case of the virgin birth, I would say the fact that it is, uh, it is that it shows up multiple times in scripture, that it's not just this kind of one off where we debate, you know, is uh, what does that word mean in the Hebrew? What is it not? That's where I would go on this one. I think you're asking the bigger question of scriptural integrity. Uh, and, and I would simply say at this point, and I'd love to hear your answer to this, too. Um, when it comes to especially when we're especially here talking about the major tenets of the faith that uh, that are throughout Scripture, uh, to pull at them, I think, starts to pull at the integrity of Scripture and going, yeah, you know, this is um, that this can be trusted, that, that the very foundational things of our faith that are throughout Scripture. Yeah, if they're if they're take them or leave them. Uh, then you start to have call into question a lot of the Bible. I know there's little things that people have throughout the Bible that that seem to be, ah, how does that work? Or that seems to be inconsistent. Something this big, I think, if this gets pulled out, I think a lot of stuff in Scripture begins to uh, begins to get called into question. So how would you answer the question of scriptural integrity? Well, I, I want to ask you this question because we haven't talked about it yet. The, the fourth reason that DeYoung gives is, I mean, this has a lot to do with whether or not you buy into the doctrine of original sin, but he says, finally, the virgin birth is essential because it means that Jesus did not inherit the curse of depravity that clings to Adam's race. Is that one that you think is significant? That's You mentioned three, but I don't think that was necessarily in your, your list off the top of your dome that you would uh, use to explain to somebody else. I should have scrolled down further. <laughs> <laughs> See what else your dome wrote. Exactly. Uh, this one's not. Yeah, I think this is an important one because uh, in Scripture uh, it speaks of, uh, you know, sin co- you know, coming through the father's line. But I would say um, for me, the biggest one is the fully divine and fully human. And how is that possible uh, if Jesus was just from Larry, as uh, as Rob Bell says here or who others? So, yeah, it's an important one. But I would say for me, uh, the fully div- the Jesus being fully divine and fully human is the big one in here for me. Well, we'd love to know what you think. A great article there written by Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition. Why does it matter uh, that Jesus was born of a virgin? Love to know what you think at our Facebook page. Uh, that is the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, seven steps for making your New Year's resolution stick. That's coming up next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. It's in uh, Christmas just around the corner, and then a week later is going to be New Year's. Uh, And so many of you out there are thinking New Year's resolutions. And uh, at Harvard Health Publishing, uh, harvard.edu, seven steps for making your New Year's resolution stick. Before we get into these, Ian, are uh, are you a New Year's resolution guy? Yeah, kinda. Okay. Uh, do you, you tend to have? Do you real fast? Do you tend to have success with your New Year's resolutions, or uh, do you? Oh, fall I don't. Like the I don't want to talk about that. Five percent. No, the other ninety-five percent of us who don't. <laughs> I I do uh, tend to aim pretty achievable when it comes to New Year's resolutions. So it it tends to be. I've yeah. I've been burned pretty bad <laughs> before in the past. I think okay, this is depressing. I need to be, I need to be more reasonable or. Uh, I'll choose resolutions that are kind of scalable. that kind of like ramp up throughout the year. So rather than the like 
all right, January one, I'm working out four times a day, every day. You're like, no, you're not. <laughs> you don't even know where the gym is. Like, come on. Like that's, you know, I'll try to build in something that sort of, uh, cascades a little bit throughout the year, but are you a new year's resolution guy? Oh, I will make multiple resolutions. And if history proves to be true, I will fail at all of them by the middle of January. <laughs> That's the spirit. I don't, I have not done well with them. I used to, when I was in college, I worked at uh, the Wheaton sports center, which is, you know, in Wheaton is like uh, the, the health club in town. And yeah. uh, it was so busy in early January. Like we had to have extra staff there in early January because of how crazy it was. And then by middle of February, early to mid February, nice. All your regulars were back and nobody else Uh was there anymore. So that's right. uh, Yes. is something. And so we bring that up to say from this article here, what, what are some practical steps? This is from the people at Harvard. What are some practical steps? They say seven steps for making your new year's resolution stick. And in fact, Ian actually touched on one or two of them. So before Mm -hmm. we get into the list, let me uh, read their intro. It says, maybe you plan to ring in 2021 with a new resolve to quit smoking, lose weight, exercise more, not sweat the small stuff. Maybe these resolutions sound familiar, maybe just like the ones you made a year ago. So how can you ensure that your determination to get healthier in 2021 sticks around past Valentine's day by creating new habits? They said, Creating new habits takes time and energy. A new behavior won't become automatic overnight, but you may enjoy some of its benefits fairly quickly. Also, as you start to take walks regularly or engage in stress-soothing practices frequently, you'll find you won't feel quite right if you stop. That's a great incentive to continue. So keep nudging yourself in the direction you'd like to go and try the following seven tips to help you create long lasting change. So they're saying the overarching thing is create new habits, which what's the old Malcolm Gladwell thing? I think it was 21 days to create a new habit, right? Yeah, I think it's Um, more than that. Or is it 28? It was 21 or 28. Yeah, I think it's Um, closer to 28. If not, I mean, I've read, I mean, you know, that's not, that's hard to prove, but I've, I've heard, I've heard numbers as high as 40 or 90. Oh, okay. Okay. And so that's why a lot of us fail at our resolutions because after a week we're going, I don't really want to go to the gym anymore or yeah, right. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, so let's jump into these seven. Why don't you take the first one? Why don't I take the first one? Number one, dream big, which I think was the theme for Exponential last year. Uh, audacious goals are compelling. You want to compete in a marathon or a triathlon, lose 50 pounds or just enough to fit into clothes you once loved. With perseverance, encouragement and support, you can do it. An ambitious aim often inspires others around you. Many will cheer you on. Some will be happy to help in practical ways, such as by training with you or taking on tasks you normally handle in order to free up your time. So pretty much the opposite of what I told you earlier, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're going to like number two, though. Yeah. Number two, break big dreams into small enough steps. Now think tiny. Small steps move you forward to your ultimate goal. Look for surefire bets. Just getting to first base can build your confidence to tackle and succeed at more difficult tasks. Don't disdain easy choices. If you start every plan with the quote make list, you're guaranteed to check one box off quickly. That's no joke. A study on loyalty programs that aim to motivate consumers found giving people two free punches on a frequent buyer card encouraged repeat business. So break hard jobs down into smaller line items and enjoy breezy uh, breezing through the easy tasks first. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming somebody's hearing this thinking like, this sounds like homework. Uh, no, thank you. I got to create lists. I got to have a, do I need a graphing calculator? Yeah, I think that's probably why a lot of people struggle. Number yeah. three, it says, understand why you shouldn't make a change. That's right. Until you grasp why you're sticking with 
sticking like a bird to old habits and routines, it may be hard to muster enough energy and will and will to take. Oh, sorry. Hold on. I got it. Energy, energy and will, and will <laughs> to take a hard left toward change. Unhealthy behaviors like overeating and smoking have immediate pleasurable payoffs as well as costs. So when you're considering a change, take time to think it through. You boost your chance of success when the balance of pluses and minuses tips enough to make adopting a new behavior more attractive than standing in place. Engaging in enjoyable aspects of an unhealthy behavior without the behavior itself helps too. For example, if you enjoy taking a break while having a smoke, take the break and enjoy it, but find healthier ways to do so. Otherwise, you're working against a headwind and are less likely to experience Mm. lasting success. I've heard a lot of people who have quit smoking say that one specifically, like, yeah, still take your smoke breaks or go to the same place that you would, but do something different. And that'll, it's almost like a, like a brain trick. Mm, Number four, commit yourself, make yourself accountable through a written or verbal promise to people that you won't let, uh, that you want, that you don't want to let down. (laughs) I'm, I'm resolving to read better in 2021. (laughs) That will encourage you to slog through tough spots. One intrepid soul created a Facebook page devoted to her goals for weight loss. You can make a less public promise to your partner or child, teacher, doctor, boss, or friends. Want more support? Post your promise on Facebook, tweet it to your followers, or seek out folks with like-minded goals. Interesting. Let me just read the uh, the bolded headings of these next three real quick. Uh, Give yourself a medal. Interesting. Number six, learn from the past. Easier said than done. Number seven, give thanks for what you do. I think that's a really important one, too, because it goes on to say, forget perfection. Set your sights on finishing that marathon, not on run, uh, not on running it. If you compete to compete, then you'll be a winner, even if you wind up walking as much as you run. With exercise and so many other goals we set, you'll benefit even when doing less than you'd like to do. I think that's a really important reminder. And again, mm-hmm. this isn't you know a explicitly Christian article, but I think that mm-hmm. there's something to be said to giving yourself some grace. Um, not, not to the point where you just abandon all your goals and all your, you know, objectives. But there is something to be said, like, yeah, that workout wasn't what I set out to do, or yeah, I did, I, I ate a little bit later at night than I would like to. Or I, I think that there is some wisdom though to, yeah, just striving for improvement maybe over perfection at times. And that's again, that's easier said than done. Yeah, if you ever read the book John, uh, "Finish" by John Acuff. Uh, as a lot about this stuff. And number five here, give yourself a medal. He has a whole chapter on like understanding how yourself or people in your organization, do they either respond better to like threat, like punishment? If you don't do this, there's going to be this consequence mm. or to a medal or to, uh, you know, a, a good stimulus. If you do this, you're going to get this. And like he says, people are wired differently. I, I'm much more wired to if I complete this, then here's the good thing that's going to happen. Hmm. Or here's the, uh, you know, we're going to treat ourselves to this or whatever. And I, I, that's why I resonate with number five there. Give yourself a medal. Uh, don't wait until the very end, but, uh, you know, look for ways to be encouraged, to find people who can encourage you and to kind of reward yourself yeah. along the way. So 2021 is coming. And we know for many of you, that's going to mean New Year's resolutions. And we want to help you uh, go along. As Ian said, this isn't at, from a Christian perspective, but we do know a lot of you, you're going to January 1 go, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day now, or I'm mm-hmm. going to pray every day. And we want you to succeed at those. Uh, and so this article, hopefully you can find helpful. Go find it at our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, one more hour for the year here for us. Coming up next, we're just going to ask this simple question. What makes Christmas important? We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Coming up this hour, what is it that makes Christmas important? And then four things that make practically everyone feel loved. You're listening to The Common Game. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we hope that you're getting all ready. All the presents are wrapped and everything's ready to go for Christmas here in a couple days. Ian, I forgot to ask you, are you guys doing anything? I know Christmas itself is special, but are you guys just staying around home? Anything Anything you're looking forward to doing over the next uh, week, week and a half? Yeah, just staying home, just getting yeah. some some FaceTime with uh, with my family, low low key. Uh, hopefully, as technology free as possible. Although, I was ask you that, yeah, I, yeah, I'll we'll probably that. probably watch a lot of Christmas movies, things like mm-hmm. that. You know, my my boys are a super fun age when it comes to new toys, and it, you know, like we we got some stuff in the mail. Mm, that's probably a week or two ago, and it came in some big boxes. And uh, like I got to carve it out and turn it into a spaceship, and they've been playing in that in the basement. Like <laughs> that awesome. made me think, like I don't need to buy you any gifts. I'm just gonna get some cardboard boxes. Uh, so yeah, we're at a we're at a fun age for all that. We've been enjoying that a lot. <laughs> we're just gonna get some cardboard boxes. <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. That's good. Yeah, we already watched uh, Elf for the second time just the sure. other night. So why not? Oh, why not? Gosh, do I love that movie? I already watched a Christmas story. We're we are knee deep in the Christmas uh, uh, movies, but hopefully we'll all be able to unplug a little bit and enjoy and enjoy some time. I did want to take uh, some time here as we get ready for the Christmas holiday. Uh, I heard something funny. One of the things I'm going to do this weekend is watch my New York Giants. Love the New York Giants. And we have a coach who's really hardcore. His guys, this guy's name is Joe Judge. Uh, he's kind of like all business all the time. And I laughed so hard when I heard what he said. Maybe because it's my team, only I'll find this funny. Maybe everyone else won't. But uh, I want you to hear seven seconds of what Joe Judd said today. I mean, look, with all due respect to Christmas, you know, let's forget about Christmas for a little while. And, and we have folks on the Ravens. Anyway, I found that funny where he said, all due respect to Christmas. It's on to the Ravens who they play this coming week. And uh, <laughs> But I did think to myself, that's kind of the way a lot of us, if I can make the connection, like you just Christmas is about everything that's around it. Right. And by the time you finally get the Christmas, uh, as much as you've been extolling Advent for a lot of people, they're like, just get me to Christmas <laughs> Day so this can be over. Right. The gifts and this and that that it can be hard to kind of keep it front of mind what it is we're celebrating and why this is worthy of such celebration. It's It, it kind of loses its focus. And so we're both pastors. I thought it would be a very pastoral thing of us to go to just kind of talk about the question uh, on kind of a deep level, like what makes Christmas important? How would you answer that question to somebody if they were like, I get it, gifts, all this, family, this, but <laughs> but what is it at its core that makes Christmas important? Gosh, I don't even know that I know how to in under five minutes <laughs> in, encapsulate that. I do think Father Kenneth Tanner has done a, a great job on this show and elsewhere talking about how easy it is for us to to skip the significance of the incarnation. You know, and historically in a lot of a lot of theological circles, it's all about death and resurrection. I mean, I've even quite literally heard people, and this is often more like off the top of the head in a sermon, like, Hey, his death and resurrection. And we just, we don't even mention the incarnation in ministry. Right. So we just go right to like, yeah, that's where redemption forgiveness of sins happens. And I think in a lot of ways we can skip or miss the significance of the incarnation, not just because Christmas can be choked out by so much of the lights and the presence and the consumerism, 
but also even theologically, I think we can really miss the significance of the word made flesh and making his dwelling among, you know, Eugene Peterson says, and moved into the neighborhood like this, the scandal and significance of that can sometimes be unfortunately reduced to simply like a nice hallmark depiction of a baby in a barn. And I think the other thing that's also really important to note is that when we, when we over sanitize the scene of Christmas and we act like it's like you were saying, I can't wait to get to Christmas as if all of our grief and sorrow goes away because baby Jesus was born. Like we know that's not true. It wasn't true in the very first Christmas. And that isn't necessarily true now either. Although, and we've said this a lot, we're literally in a series right now called hope for everyone that there is hope in the incarnation and what that means that Jesus becomes a human, but it doesn't mean that there's still not grit and difficulty and fear and struggle and concern and all, and all of those things. So it's like, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of significance to Christmas especially in a season and a year like we've had that sometimes we can miss out on. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people will look to December 25th as, man, once I get there, yeah. then I'll, then I'll feel just this grand relief. And you're like, yeah, you might not actually. And what is, what does hope mean in the midst of chaos and stress yeah. and fear and anxiety and uncertainty? I think, I think Christmas speaks to all of that. I want to give you a chance to dive in because the other day you said something interesting. You mentioned that your church, uh, Community Christian Church, you guys have been going through a series about hope uh, in in this Advent season. Uh, And you said, I think I'm I'm going to put words in your mouth, but you essentially said the longer I kind of think about this, the more I see just like hope being like one of the biggest um, uh, concepts in all of Scripture. You said something to that effect. How is it that the incarnation, that Christmas particularly – provides hope. And what is it for you as you've been preaching through this and kind of studying it and thinking about it where this concept of hope has been so powerful for you? Yeah, gosh, I think, I think for me, there's a couple of ways I would answer that. One, when God looked at just the brokenness of the world, he could have sent a decree or a book or a philosophy or a notion or any of those things, but the fact that he he chose to send himself in the form of like frail humanity, uh, that to me says a lot about the nature of the universe and how God's heart is uh, bent toward us. Like, you know, we tend to often think of greatness is found by climbing some corporate ladder or increased salary, influence or platform or recognition or blah, blah, blah. And this like downward focused God who chooses not to not to make his entrance in this way on on a, a horse with wings and a sword, but as a frail baby to a poor no name family. Like if, if we're to learn something about the character of God in that, then at the very least it calls into question some of our own metrics of success and security and trajectory and all the stuff that the world tells us that's where your hope should be. That's what will bring you fulfillment. Um, not to mention that he then goes on to live a life of relative obscurity until his three years of earthly ministry, never traveling, you know, much further than what, 40 miles from his home. Like there's by our metrics, again, that would be a failure. And I think part of what's so beautiful about hope is that it's, it's very different than optimism. And hope says something that even in the midst of uncertainty, when I cannot see a light at the end of the tunnel, a kind of God that would love us to that degree in that way is 
is something that I I'm willing to trade my life for. And not just simply because, Oh, it's a compelling story, but because there's just, there's just nothing else like it. What God gives of himself to eventually not just be incarnated, but to serve and love and then die a criminal's death. Um, that just runs counters to so much of our instincts. And I think at the very least, the incarnation of the nativity says that God would rather die for us than live without us. And that is mm. the most hopeful message in the world that I could imagine. And I think it, yeah, it it's the kind of thing that every year when I revisit it, even though I feel like you have a good handle on it because it's Christmas and you've heard it a million times, mm-hmm. it's like a, it's like a prism. Like you just, you see a new side to it that just hits you in a totally different way. Uh, it's really well put. I'm glad that we took this time because I think for a lot of us, a lot of you out there and us included, Christmas is just hectic and you could really never even stop to pause. And so hopefully just taking that time and talking about the hope that we have and the importance of the incarnation uh, was an encouragement to you uh, and that you do take some time to reflect over these coming days uh, as to uh, what is it that we're even celebrating? What is it that we're doing here and and why is it so important? And so Glad that we could take that time. Well, coming up next, uh, four things that make practically everyone feel loved, according to a new study. We're going to talk about that study next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, so we said we gave you what one of the holidays was. Every every show we have Ian take some time to tell us what the holidays are. Uh, the biggest holiday today is Festivus. So there will mm-hmm. be the airing of the grievances later tonight. Sure. Uh, sure. Any of you who aren't Seinfeld fans, you're very confused right now. But that's your loss. Uh, but Ian, I would like to know uh, what are the holidays two days before Christmas? What are our holidays today? Well, besides Christmas, Adam, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Festivus is <laughs> Festivus is also mentioned on this list, so that's fun. Is it really? And, oh yeah, yep. It it's is so uh, funny that it's made it into like cultural lexicon, I, right? I don't know that this website fits quite in the category of cultural lexicon, but uh, so Emperor's Birthday in Japan, so that's a okay. that's a thing. Uh, it's National Roots Day. I don't know if that's the the musical group or. <laughs> Things with Hair. plants or like, yeah, maybe <laughs> because everyone's been in quarantine, like everyone's roots are showing. Maybe that's why. Um, but it is also National Pfeffernusa Day. No idea. Oh, yes, you do. These are those little, um, uh, well, how do you describe them? They're, uh, they're like spice cookies. Oh, okay. Yes, you know what I'm yes, talking yes. about? They're like, I, I think they're, they're like white. I think they're uh, German. I want to say German. I also feel like the people people in Netherlands have something similar. I I also we you know we had a a guy on staff for a couple of years at my last church who grew up Mennonite. I think the, I think the Mennonites have a version of this this cookie as well. I could be I could be way off on this, but I I you think I'm right. Have, you must have loved having somebody who was a Mennonite on your staff. <laughs> oh my goodness! Especially as a youth pastor, he yes. broke all the rules in the best way possible. He was awesome to have on staff. That's so funny. That's so funny. Is that all the holidays for today? Oh yeah, that's it. Sorry. No states. No nothing. All right. Well, uh, Christmas is coming, so the big one's coming. But mm-hmm. uh, until then, you have national. Should I should I give tomorrow's? I mean, since we're not going to be apps, we should just do this whole segment should be the rest of the days. But no, just give me tomorrow's. Yes. Okay, tomorrow. Well, appropriately, so it's National Regifting Day. That's funny. 
<laughs> the day before Christmas. That's what. Uh-huh. Yep. It is uh, Yap Constitution Day in Micronesia. It is, I mean, Christmas Eve. Why does it? It's, it's only Christmas Eve in Brazil. Is what it says. <laughs> Brazil and Paraguay. It's Independence Day in Libya. And it's also, are you ready for, I didn't know this is a thing. It's National Eggnog Day. It would make sense. You and I, we discussed earlier that I'm not a big eggnog fan, but uh, we did more than discuss. It was almost the end of our friendship. There was anger there. <laughs> yeah. Does that does that make you agnostic? Oh my gosh, you didn't just do that. <laughs> no, is that not is that not appropriate? <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. That was very funny. Good. That Thank was you. funny. Thank you. I appreciate agnostic. that. Agnostic. Okay, well, at Get Pocket, we're just going to leave that there. The four things that make practically everyone feel loved, according to a new survey, says this, Americans are out of sync with each other about many things, but not (laughs) this. According to Gary Chapman's theory of love languages, different people need different things in order to feel loved. Some people will feel most appreciated with quality time, others physical touch, others words of affirmation. But while it's undoubtedly true that one person's charming weekend getaway gift is another person's stress-filled organizational (laughs) quagmire, (laughs) a new study suggests that among Americans, at least, there's a fair amount of consensus around which gestures are most likely to make people feel loved. In a study published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, researchers from Penn State and the University of California, Irvine, asked 495 men and women in the U.S. to complete an online survey. Uh, respondents were instructed to respond to statements about each scenario, such as most people feel loved when someone is there to just listen with true, false, or don't know. Importantly, researchers asked the participants to answer based on how they thought a majority of people would feel, Hmm. not based on their own personal emotional programming. Hmm. The study uh, led them, the the co-authors. Nope, say that. Nope, 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 nope. Say those names. (laughs) Uh, Seda Hejmadi and Zita Oravekis. <laughs> that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. He did it. <laughs> they identified some behaviors that nearly all participants agreed would make people feel loved. There were strong consensus around the following four scenarios. All right. I'm going to read these four. And then I want you to be like, uh, yes, on all of them or do any of these surprise. Here we go. The four scenarios that there was near consensus. One. When someone shows compassion toward them in difficult times. That makes sense. Two, yeah. when a child snugs up, snuggles up to them. Okay. Uh, three, I found this one hilarious. When their <laughs> pets are happy to see them. <laughs> There's so much truth to that because when I walk in the door and my dogs look like it's the greatest thing they've ever experienced, it makes you go, yeah, yeah, okay. All is you, well in the world. You've mentioned it a lot, actually. Yep. And number four, when somebody tells them, I love you. So does it surprise you that they that they could narrow down four uh, from this long from this list that they had and said that there was almost consensus on these four? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a little surprising. I'm probably personally most surprised by the third one because, yeah. well, maybe for two reasons. One, I don't currently have a pet. And I say currently in the hopes that my wife is listening and is <laughs> yes feeling compelled to give me the green light on getting a puppy. But I often hear people say things like, yeah, it's nice, but dogs are happy at everything they're they'd be happy uh, if you threw an old boot so they're not actually you know like it feels like sometimes we i hear people out talk themselves and that's not how i want to say that talk themselves out of feeling affection from a pet because like yeah that's just a pet but 
if it's interesting that 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 made the list like, well, regardless, most everyone feels loved when it happens. I can definitely vouch with the age of my kids when the kid snuggles up to you. That is the best. I went upstairs from my basement dungeon a couple days ago and I like got on my knees and like gave put my arms out in like a hug motion. And for 20 minutes, my son sprinted in my arms, gave me a hug, and then he like ran back to where he was and then sprinted back to my arms. And I'm like, I'm I'm not doing anything else for the rest of the night. This is the best That's feeling. So, so yeah, I, I definitely can vouch for that one. My 11 year old daughter. So my youngest, Emily, yesterday, she was going to bed and she was reading in her room uh, and I just climbed into her bed next to her. And, you know, she's hitting that age where. You know, right. like, some days she's a kid, some days she's a teenager, you know, they kind of hit that age. Right. Uh, and she just cuddled in my arms for the longest time. And it was like there was there needed to be nothing else going on into the world at that moment. <laughs> it was just like, oh, don't ever grow up anymore. This is the best. And um, right. so e- even at, I totally get I remember the days of when they're two and three, like you said, and you walk in the door and, the, and they come sprinting at you like it's like the greatest thing ever. Uh, but even when they're older and they just and then, yeah, it's just like you said, it is just the best. Here's a really interesting paragraph. It said there's one more noteworthy takeaway. Despite the popularity of romantic tales of ultra controlling men, uh, most Americans agree that in the real world, possessive behavior doesn't make people feel loved. Hmm. Scenarios in which somebody wants to know where you are at all times or someone tells you what is best for them or someone is possessive about them were all rated unlikely to spark feelings of warmth and tenderness, uh, tenderness, which I think we know that when we read it, but how many of us like, you know, still think uh, like how much of our world is different than that, I think is, is pretty mm. wild. And so I thought this was really interesting because you might be reading this going, yeah, you know what? I I do kind of like those things, but uh, I would say, uh, you know what, if, if you're, if you're uh, your spouse, you know that they're going to feel loved when you tell them, I love you be good at telling them I love you or show compassion sure. towards others or, uh, you know, get a pet. Like you said, Ian, I hope your wife heard this today. So, uh, <laughs> that we, we could get that. Maybe there'll be one under the tree for you this Christmas. So, mm. uh, all right, coming up next gospel coalition. If God can show up in Bethlehem, what can he do now? We're going to talk about that next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, if you're a regular listener to the show, something we've been just telling you to make sure you're aware of. Today is our last show of 2020. Ian and I will be taking a little bit of time off uh, with our families for the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Uh, there will be best of shows going on next week from four until six. Uh, but uh, if you if you tune in, you're like, I think I've heard this before. That is why we are aware. So. Uh, we do look forward to joining you again after the new year, and uh, I'm sure we will have all sorts of stories to tell. Uh, well, we've been trying to point us to Christmas, getting us ready for uh, what is coming here in two days. And uh, with that in mind, at the Gospel Coalition, Jeremy Lindman wrote this, if God can show up in Bethlehem, dot, dot, dot. Oh, that, that, that's what we call a tease right there. All right. If God can show up in Bethlehem, Ian. Why don't you give this uh, at least a start for us? I think it's called an ellipsis is what it's called. Is the, it is. <laughs> I don't know how to end the sentence. Like, if God could show up in Bethlehem, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> ellipses. Uh, yeah. I mean, you should just say, say ellipses out loud. All right. Ellipses. So here's, here's how he begins. He says, I sometimes wonder if my life is so small and slow and ordinary that it's inconsequential. My family is wonderful and regular. I lead a church plant. 
that lacks in style but makes up in substance. We live in a oh boy, what's that word? Oh, flyover. 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 I was thinking. I think it would. I thought it was. I first read it as foyer, <laughs> but misspelled. I was like, you live in a foyer, a flyover state in the Midwest. If my life were a TV show, an audience wouldn't last beyond the pilot. I wonder if that's a flyover pun. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm tempted to think, should I be doing something more? Should I be in a more exciting place? Wouldn't God be more glorified by a more extraordinary church? In the middle of my personal and pastoral insecurities, the season of Advent speaks into my fears. Each Advent, I become especially aware of the paradox of Christmas and the Advent, parenthetically, arrival of our hope in Christ. In that paradox, I'm discovering that perhaps this ordinary life, this regular family, and this humble newborn church are the exact types of places God likes to appear. In what sense is Christmas a paradox? It's a profound spiritual holy day and a commercialized bonanza. It celebrates the turning point in human history, and yet only a handful of people witnessed it. It makes this remarkable claim, the king of the universe came to earth, and yet this remarkable claim appears most foolish. He was born as a baby to poor parents in a stable for animals. Centuries before the birth of our Lord, the prophet Isaiah foreshadowed the advent of our hope, writing, nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Into a world of darkness, a light has dawned. Into a world of despair, hope has risen. Into a world of money and power and war, a child is born? The birth narrative in Luke's gospel tells us of Joseph and Mary's 80 or 90 mile journey to Bethlehem, of their inability to secure a safe place to give birth, and of the humble conditions into which our Savior arrived. This is a paradox. The king of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, the son of God, comes in the form of a baby. And yet Joseph and Mary named him Jesus, meaning Savior. He is Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. He of infinite glory and majesty became helpless dependent and small in the middle of nowhere to parents who might be called nobodies. This child who looked like any other baby was born. Jesus didn't come by way of fairy tale birth into a golden palace. Jesus came by way of pain of poverty of confusion. Jesus comes into the real world, this place of both beauty and brokenness, not into some idealized world. I'll stop there. That's really beautifully written. And it's a lot of what we were actually talking about in the first hour. And I think, I think it's a really important reminder, especially with how easy it is. Like I just saw a post the other day and it was somebody and, you know, Lord bless him. It was like, here are my favorite nativity scenes that I own. And one of them was like all 24 karat gold, like lace with diamonds. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty. But I think it I think it misses the point. Like I remember reading Jane Clayboard wrote and I think in his first book, how somebody had come to one of his events. And then show up the next week at another event. I was like, man, I really, really loved what you had to say. And so I had this made and he showed him this like 24 karat diamond encrusted WWJD bracelet. (laughs) Shane was like, I appreciate your fervor, man, but I I feel like you may have missed what I was saying. And I think that I think we can sometimes do that with the nativity. And I I like the way that he frames this a lot. I really do, too. We've talked about this before, but I I know I've preached the sermons about you got to change the world. You're called to change the world, you know, and. And as pastors, uh, especially uh, like how I planted a church, I started a church, you start to think, man, we've got to be the biggest church in town. we got to be, uh, you know, our, we want our community to miss us if we're not here. None of those are bad things. But this idea that he starts with of like, uh, 
you've got to be extraordinary. You've got to be extraordinary, you know, parents and extraordinary pastors and extraordinary this and that. I think is a real temptation and leaves Mm -hmm. a lot of us feeling like we haven't done anything with our lives. Like, what have we done? And so him painting this picture that Jesus came into the world uh, in in a unexpected, really ordinary, messy, broken kind of way uh, is is, I think, really important for us to go. Yeah. You know what? Uh, if the savior of the world came in, not in this extraordinary way and everything, and there wasn't, why would I expect that I have to do everything extraordinary? I think that's a really helpful, uh, corrective. I know I've struggled with that a lot in my life Hmm. of going, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And then all of a sudden you're like, but where's that pressure even coming from? Who's even putting that on me? I think that's just me. And so I, I do like the way he set this up. Yeah, I like what he says here next. He talks about he has a a friend of his with a picture of the world in his office. He writes, it looks so perfect. Big blue oceans, white clouds, green land, brown mountain ranges. He likes to point people to it and then tell them that's not a real picture. Apparently, it takes a combination of nearly 100 photos since darkness and shadows cover different parts of the earth at one time. Photographers must patch together numerous images into one picture. It's beautiful, but it's not real. That perfect world does not exist. Much like this photoshopped earth, we have an idealized version of it in our minds. The earth is supposed to be this perfectly beautiful place, but that world doesn't exist. Instead, we get pieces of beauty and pieces of brokenness. This is the power of the Christmas story. Jesus doesn't enter the idealized idealized world from the NASA postcard. He enters the real world, our home of brokenness and beauty. He comes here because this world needs to be made whole. It's that idea that we were talking about yesterday of, of shalom, meaning fullness, mm-hmm. completeness, and wholeness. And I think I'm so glad to see more and more writers this year in particular kind of writing from this perspective. Absolutely. Because again, a lot of us, he, he goes on to say, our child king is the paradox. His palace is a stable. His bed is dirt and straw. An unlikely child, a poor family in a nowhere town in these ordinary conditions. Uh, and then he goes on to quote uh, Frederick Buchner, but it's just uh, it, it, it is uh, a great, I don't know what other better word to use than the one I already used. It's a corrective for me to go, okay, uh, why do I think that Jesus needs me to be so extraordinary and have everything together and change the world on my own? And this, that, and when we know that's not the case, but with so many of us set ourselves up for just a struggle. And I, and I, I do appreciate this idea that if he could come into Bethlehem, if he could come into that poverty and that brokenness and that dirt and this grime, then what can he still do in our world right now? I think that's kind of the wonder of Christmas. Not that everything's going to be made right uh, right now, and not that all my problems are going to go away, uh, but but that he can just still work. He goes on later to say, it's where God seems most hidden and most powerless that he may reveal himself most powerfully. And mm. like that's just a good news. It's good news of Advent. He said, God isn't afraid to show up in unlikely, unseen, and humble places we might even say he prefers them. If he can show up in the dead of night in a crowded animal stable, he can show up anywhere. So uh, anyway, well-written Jeremy Linneman, well-written. He is the lead pastor of Trinity Community Church in Columbia, Missouri. Again, you can find that at our Facebook page. If God can show up in Bethlehem, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> well, we've got one more segment to go here in 2020. And uh, as two pastors, we're going to try to leave you with some encouragement as we move towards 2021. That's coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. 
Let your heart be. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Well, Ian, uh, as we said, just in case anyone's just tuning in, this will be our last show of 2020, taking a little bit of time off before the new year. Uh, and as we do, I thought, just as we started today's show, looking back on 2020, I would like to look ahead to 2021 uh, and try to give our people out there just a little bit of uh, a little bit of hope, a little bit of inspiration, uh, especially as we're coming out of a year of of so much struggle. So I guess I'll start there, and and I would ask you this question. Uh, there are people, I would say, a lot of people out there because of pandemic and everything else going on and all things related to it, who are limping into 2021. They're limping out of 2020 and limping into 2021. Uh, and, you know, when they think about going into a new year, they know that, you know, everything's not just going to change overnight because it's a new year just because the calendar changes. But we also know mm-hmm. that when you change years, uh, there is some symbolic, you know, wiping the slate clean. There is something that goes on. And so for that person who maybe right now feels like they're kind of limping into 2021 for whatever reason, what's a, what's maybe something we always ask our guests, right? What's a word of hope, uh, a word of encouragement maybe that that you could give to them as they kind of look towards this new year? Yeah, one of the things that uh, I like to do during Advent is, is to choose like a prayer just to keep coming back to uh, for all the weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas as a way of sort of slowing down. But also, I mean, even with this job, to be honest, a lot of times we're like constantly like skimming and saving and sharing and tweeting and texting articles. And we'll read like a headline and a paragraph or two or, you know, like there's, there's just a lot that you can kind of take in. So sometimes for me, especially at Advent, it's a time to like try and hit pause on some of that and to just, rest in and kind of be changed by. And I keep coming back to this, this Franciscan blessing. I'll just read it. Cause I think it's, for me, it's, it's been really, really helpful in this season. And I've, I've read it in years past and it hits, it hits different every year, but here's, here's what it reads. It says, may God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half truths and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain to joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. Amen. That's and I, powerful. yeah, it's just sort of this fourfold prayer, this blessing that I've, I've been trying to, I mean, it fits again with like kind of the four weeks of Advent for me, at least Yeah, this wasn't anything that, you know, we were necessarily encouraging other people to do, but it's, it's certainly been, been helpful for me. And I have really loved that, that last line, especially, you know, earlier we were talking about New Year's resolutions and I'm not just talking about the, you know, going to the gym thing or eating more veggies. The, the idea that we would ask God to give us enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. And I would maybe add, you know, like by the power of the Holy spirit, you know, ultimately like what, what we can do in our own strength, uh, what God tells us is, is ultimately not typically of great eternal value or significance apart from, apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing, but abide in me. You know, I just keep coming back to that word abide. Like if, if the goal for us any year, but especially this year, isn't, to grow fruit, but to bear fruit, 
You can't do any of that if we're not first abiding in Christ. You can't go out there and change the world or make a difference or win people to Jesus or be on mission or any of that stuff. You can't do any of that if we're not first like rooted deeply in the soil of Jesus. And I think for me, if this last year has taught me anything, it's like, man, that that's not just like a nice thing to do if you have the time or if you want to if you want to feel centered. It's like, man, if we're not deeply connected to the vine none of anything else that we do is, is really going to have significant internal value. So like, yeah, this prayer coupled with sort of that imagery for me has certainly been something that I've been grappling with and wrestling with and wanting to really kind of carry as a, as a bit of a mantra almost into the next year. But I'd be curious, what are, what are you kind of wrestling with? What's sort of on your mind? Yeah. You know, what has really been going on for me lately uh, is uh, two things. One, and you and I talked about this yesterday, is just the idea of God as, uh, as Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, that that even in our darkest moments, he's still here. Uh, he has not abandoned us and said, oh, good luck. I got better things to do. Uh, but that I can, uh, he says he's near to the brokenhearted and, and to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I think of uh, in my own life, but also those who are out there really struggling and just that invitation, that invitation uh, that's in his very title, in his very name. And man, you and I read some articles here that sometimes they just stick with me. And one that we read a week ago has just stuck with me so much. Uh, and I don't even know why, because it wasn't even all that profound. But it, would you remember the mm-hmm. article we read a couple weeks ago about encouragement? That, yeah. the, that, that the church needs to be in a place of encouragement and that we need to take up kind of the, the simple call uh, of being encouragers and the number of times that Paul talks about encouragement. I don't know why that has stuck with me so much, but man, in 2021, I want to be an encourager. Mm. I want our church to be an encourager. There's been so much discouragement this year in the church and outside of the church uh, that I think if the church, Big C Church, can grow in encouragement, if we can be encouragers, and sometimes encouragement means speaking hard words to each other. So I'm not I'm not asking everyone out there to just, oh, just fluff everything over. Let's pretend everything's nice in 2021. Uh, but even to do it with a heart of like we're family and some hmm. encouragement, that one has really stuck with me. I've been really just kind of uh, just mulling that over a lot and, and something I really want. And what's uh, let's end it this way. What's one thing that you hope you and I read a lot of articles, quite frankly, about the things that are wrong with the church and uh, yeah. uh, just kind of the warts of the church uh, in 2021. What is one thing if you could pick one thing that you would love to see? the big C church grow in, in America. What's, what's one thing that comes to mind? You know, I've been grappling a little bit with uh, a dichotomy that I'm not, I'm not sure if it's actually there or not, but you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of the, the seeker movement, which, you know, fits in the category of what some might call attractional. And then Mm -hmm. in some way, sort of a response to the attractional movement was the missional movement, right? So there's the attractional, like come to us because the thing we're doing is great versus no, we're sending you out because it's the work is out there. I I don't know if this holds water, but I've been really struck with by the formational, which I think is in between the two. Like for the big C church, what I think would just be revolutionary, regardless of our programs or strategy or ecclesiology or missiology. I mean, if we were if we were just really committed to be apprentices of Jesus, disciples to Ooh. Jesus, to allow that to be the thing that forms because that changes both anything we do that's attractional or missional. But it, I guess it kind of ties into some of the abide stuff I was saying. If we're not being formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus, then everything else is just programs, right? It's just, it's just commentary. And I, I think, man, a recommitment to apprenticing to Jesus, to be with Jesus, 
to become like Jesus and to then do the stuff that he did. I think that right. that would be that would be world changing. Mm, solid word to end on, man. Uh, it's 2020 has been a, a weird, crazy ride. I believe we called yeah. it unprecedented a, a million times on this show. Uh, but hopefully there's some some better days ahead in 2021. And here in 2020, uh, it has been our pleasure to be with you day in and day out. And we look forward to being together after the new year. We hope that you have a Merry Christmas and, and uh, have some good time uh, with your family and just reflecting upon what makes this season uh, so important, what makes this Christmas season so worth celebrating. So uh, hopefully you have a great Christmas season. Well, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Now.